This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elena McGrath, a host of the channel. With us today is Susan Ellison, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Wellesley College. Her book, Domesticating Democracy, The Politics of Conflict Resolution in Bolivia, was published by Duke University Press in 2018. An ethnography of foreign-funded alternate dispute resolution organizations that provide legal aid and conflict resolution to residents of Alato, Bolivia, Domesticating Democracy has earned an honorable mention for the 2018 Victor Turner Prize in Ethnographic Writing and won the Latin American Studies Association's Bryce Wood Book Award for Outstanding Work in the Humanities and Social Sciences. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Elena. So let's start with your background and sort of how you came to this topic. So before you entered graduate school, you were already you already had worked extensively in Bolivia, is that right? Yes, that's correct. I'd been in Bolivia for about four years before I came back to the U.S. to attend graduate school. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that experience. You know, I a lot of the questions that became the sort of driving research questions for me when I came back to Bolivia, when I returned to Bolivia uh, as a graduate student, had emerged during my work in Bolivia uh, prior. So I had been working for four years before 2001 to 2005, facilitating a national network of Bolivian grassroots groups and NGOs and faith-based organizations that had kind of come together in an effort to approach issues of uh, development and justice differently. Uh, Each individual institution had been working on its own set of issues of what it thought were important and kind of more classic development style uh, projects. But as a network, we're trying to come together to look at the structural causes of poverty in the country. And so a lot of that work was more focused on sort of critical analysis and advocacy work. And I had been living and working there in 2003 when there was a a famous uprising in the city of Alto uh, that precipitated both the the flight of then-President Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, who who went to the United States, who, who fled Bolivia in the wake of violence that the state had inflicted on protesters. And it also precipitated the arrival of a new sort of surge of of foreign donors, uh, classic donors, but sort of new funding sources uh, focused on trying to improve democracy, quote unquote, in the country. Um, And so a lot of sort of post-conflict aid intervention coming from the U.S., coming from European donors, uh, that really targeted the city of Alto, Bolivia, where that uprising had been had been um, fomenting, and um, and so a lot of what I saw on the ground when I was working there uh, had had uh, shaped the kinds of questions I had when I when I came back to Bolivia as a graduate student and trying to understand the debates and the dilemmas that a lot of NGO workers and activists and social movement participants were wrestling with as they considered whether or not to accept that funding, whether or not uh, they would have autonomy in designing projects that they thought were relevant to the communities with which they worked, whether or not they would suddenly have to uh, contain their what they saw as the sort of critical issues where they worked in a framework that was legible to donors, that was acceptable to donors. And in the process of beginning the field work uh, as a grad student, um, there was a time also uh, where U.S.-Bolivian relations fully broke down around accusations from the Morales administration that the U.S. government was intervening in Bolivian politics. And so I, I got to sort of see this sort of trajectory of organizations initially 
pursuing that funding and then um, becoming increasingly uncomfortable with some of what they saw as restrictions on the kind of work they were able to do. And ultimately, uh, many organizations disavowing the fact that they had received that funding because of their concerns, whether it was about the actual um, kinds of constraints they were facing as as recipients of U.S. funding um, or because of the hyper-politicized kind of shifting context uh, of uh, Morales administration critiques of the role of NGOs in the country. And so a lot of that early experience that I had working with nonprofit organizations, Bolivian and, and international aid organizations had really shaped the questions I brought into my fieldwork uh, and informed it, but also then uh, provided me with sort of contacts and new opportunities to then pursue that no longer in my capacity as someone who was working with aid organizations, that was working with NGOs, that was working with social movements, but as someone who is reapproaching those themes now as an anthropologist. So that's that's really interesting. What a time to be living and working in Bolivia. Um, and uh, I can I can also remember uh, the uh, relationships breaking down between Bolivia and the United States during fieldwork. Um, but so let's let's start with for listeners who aren't familiar with it. What is alternate dispute resolution, um, and how did how did you focus in on that as a as an emphasis? So alternative dispute resolution is uh, an effort to basically encourage people to pursue conflict resolution outside of the state legal system. Although that I, I want to be careful in saying that when I talk about like all informal or formal or outside or inside state legal systems, those distinctions are actually quite fuzzy in practice. And there's a lot of research among specialists who talk about the relationship between the state legal system and alternative uh, spaces of conflict resolution. Um, and for the purposes of our conversation today, I'll, I'll just say that there, there's a lot that folks can explore if those are things that they're interested in. Um, those those distinctions tend to be the kind of effort to pry apart um, the courts, for example, from space mediation spaces are something that people often who are practitioners are thinking about in terms of providing people with a means to resolve conflict without having to go to the courts. Uh, and so alternative dispute resolution uh, comes in many guises. It includes commercial arbitration. It includes community-based mediation that is facilitated by volunteers. Uh, it's uh, something that is familiar in the U.S. context in the 70s with the San Francisco community boards, where there was an effort to encourage people to uh, to address conflicts with neighbors, with friends, with spouses, uh, with exes, uh, through spaces that were that were not. Um, that would enable people to to find uh, find solutions to their conflicts without having to go to court. Uh, and it beyond that, it's it's uh, it's something that has been picked up in a lot of international kind of aid or development work uh, by organizations that have seen this as a way to encourage uh, people to adopt um, practices of conflict resolution particularly in places that are perceived to have uh, broken or, or deeply um, delayed court systems. So places where people are either going to face uh, really lengthy court processes without a lot of satisfaction, or where women or indigenous people in the context of Bolivia uh, may face discrimination in the context of state legal systems. Uh, advocates of alternative dispute resolution tend to see this as an opportunity to encourage people to find uh, solutions that will be more satisfying to everyone involved um, outside of those institutional spaces of the, of the court system. Uh, in the U.S. context, uh, we are often familiar with them in terms of, you know, uh, court-mandated uh, mediation before going to court. A lot of people now, it's taken for granted that if you're getting a divorce, you're going to go do mediation uh, ahead of uh, pursuing a you know a solution through the courts uh, to those issues, and so it's become pretty normalized in the U.S. context and in many other parts of the world. Uh, and part of what I'm looking at in the book is the way that this sort of platform gets picked up by a variety of different organizations, including USAID and its um, 
its contractors, uh, so a number of different for-profit development firms that are implementing different USAID contracts, as well as some European donors and other NGOs that begin to promote this as a way to help the poor in particular, women and indigenous Bolivians in particular, uh, find more satisfying alternatives to the court system. And I can talk a little bit more about how I see this within a broader kind of panorama of uh, democracy assistance programs and and uh, efforts to kind of transform the way that Bolivians actually engage with the state itself, um, depending on what would be helpful for folks. I think I think that would be very helpful. I mean, one of the things you outlined very effectively in the book is is this. Um, so ADR is something that many people embrace because the the uh, judicial system and other forms of bureaucracies are seen as either broken or extraordinarily difficult to navigate. Um, but then there's this other side. Um, and so a tool for like making government work better, but there's this other side of it where it becomes a tool for inculcating the right kind of self-governance um, in a country where people, uh, Bolivian people are often accused of being too political or too unruly, too insurgent. Yes. Right. Exactly. So one of the things I, I argue is that in some ways, the promotion of ADR, alternative dispute resolution, is in fact responding to some very real needs in the country in terms of people's deep distrust in state legal system and in, in legal bureaucracies and the police. Um, in, in some ways, these programs do very much identify very real issues. Having worked now more recently in the, in the criminal courts, um, and in various other institutional spaces within Bolivian legal bureaucracy, um, the, the idea that people would want to uh, not be trapped in the grip of these bureaucracies is very real. People often do experience them as, as abusive, as uh, expensive for people who are already struggling um, to make ends meet. And so in, in many ways, these programs do identify and respond to a very real need in the country. That said, part of the argument of the book is to say, we need to understand them not just as some sort of neutral technique or tool of helping people resolve conflict, but to understand that the, the way that they are encouraging people to deal with conflict or to deal with the sources of conflict uh, in El Alto. And, and one of the things I talk about is the way that El Alto itself is perceived to be a pathologically conflictual place, a place filled with angry, frustrated, violent people. And that's a characterization that I find troubling and try and push back against while nevertheless confronting the fact that people are dealing with very difficult issues uh, and there is a lot of conflict. But part of what I'm arguing is that these programs then encourage people to deal with their conflicts in such a way that it tends to uh, strip conflict down to its most basic level as sort of interpersonal disputes that can be resolved in these spaces between two individuals who are struggling with issues in a way that tends to depoliticize them, that tends to not show the broader political economic context that is driving some of these conflicts when we're dealing with mediation spaces, for example. Um, but that also encourages people to, as you were saying, sort of assume this, uh, this approach to dealing with conflict that, that uh, promoters of these programs hoped would extend beyond, let's say, your conflict with your mother-in-law or your neighbor, but that these would inculcate people with particular skill sets and techniques of dealing with conflict that they would then extend to their participation in other much more explicitly political spaces. I would say these are political spaces as well. But the idea that Bolivians have a tendency to participate and are well known for, and particularly Altenos, for their strategic use of um, spatial occupation of neighboring La Paz, which is the seat of government, uh, there are very effective uses of, of blockades and strikes and um, hunger strikes, uh, that these kinds of tactics that have been mobilized by trade unions, neighborhood associations, social movements that have effectively made the voices of largely marginalized, poor and indigenous Bolivians known and made that weight felt, which was most explicitly um or most recently made uh, clear in the 2003 uprising in El Alto, which I was living there. I was living in La Paz at the time, shut down neighboring La Paz, the, the seat of government, uh, very effectively cut off access to food and gasoline, and cooking gas and things like that. That that capacity, that sort of vice grip that the city of El Alto was able to exercise on 
Uh, neighboring La Paz as a means to make its demands known uh, in its critiques of various policies that that Altenios found insufficient for their needs. Um, that, that that was seen by a lot of donors as threatening, as destabilizing, as antithetical democracy, and that the idea that people would be able to learn these tools and techniques of, of conflict resolution as something that would not just remain in interpersonal disputes, but that could be extended to social political conflict uh, is one of the things I'm trying to explore in the book and to think about uh, both why people find these techniques appealing, whether it's because they want to avoid going to court uh, or because they think that there is something very valuable in learning a lot of uh, techniques that, that we now often take for granted such as learning to use I statements to express your frustration with someone as opposed to accusatory ones, uh, but also why um, many people are very skeptical of these kinds of programs um, and why some of them find that not just they're not just skeptical, but they find them very threatening to more radical forms of political engagement because they see it as a way of dampening, uh, as uh as some critics have referred to it, dampening class conflict or, or uh, discouraging people from uh, asserting their demands through more confrontational forms of political action like protests. And so this might be a good time to um, ask you to unpack a little bit the title of your book, um, because it seems like some of what you're getting at in your last comment is this is this space where the what what some might call the private sphere is then understood as a way of teaching um, tools for the public sphere as well. Um, and as, but, but there's other levels to your use of um, domestication in this book. Right. So I, I take this idea of domesticating democracy. And at the time when I was thinking about the title, I was aware of the fact that especially in Spanish, you know, domestication, I think in English doesn't quite have or, may, or maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't, you know, to me, it doesn't have quite as highly charged a sense as it does in Spanish, domesticar, um, which, and although I do think it, it translates in terms of the kinds of layers at which I'm trying to think about what it means to domesticate democracy or domestication of democracy. So I, the title is intended to sort of identify what I, or to, to, get at what I identify as several different ways that these programs are engaged in forms of domestication or urge us to think about the relationship between the domestic and sort of democracy. So the first is in the sense that domestication uh, could be understood as a way of talking about what it means to tame or to pacify, to domesticate, like you're domesticating an animal. And part of that is my effort to kind of get at the way that a lot of these programs were perceived by critics and by social movement activists as a way to, to do just that, to, to pacify a population that is often seen as unruly and confrontational. And I'm speaking about El Alto, but also other places that were targeted by these programs. Uh, so the, at the widespread perception by a lot of critics of foreign aid and uh, particularly of U.S. aid uh, of uh, these programs being an effort to pacify uh, politically active, politically militant people. And so we hear that I, and one of the things we, I, I kind of try and give voice to are the people who are making that critique, not just at the level of the Bolivian government, so the Morales administration and, uh, and other critics who are often quite critical of, uh, the role of U.S. foreign aid in particular, or U.S. government, uh, U.S. strategic interests, that have criticized the U.S. for uh, inherencia for interventionism into Bolivian democracy, but also activists and other sort of folks who are perhaps not on the front lines of activism, but who are articulating these kinds of concerns about their perception that this is a form of, of taming more radical forms of politics. But I'm also thinking about domestication in the sense of what it means, uh, what the domestic is. So in, th in terms of domestic policy and questions of sovereignty in the country. So as the Morales administration has tried to sever or, or diminish uh, several relations or diminish the, the import of uh, the U.S., the sway of the U.S. in domestic policies. So many of the critiques about the ways that the U.S. is long um, pressured or other sort of multilateral institutions that are heavily influenced by the U.S. has um, has impinged on Bolivian sovereignty. Part of what I'm thinking about, too, is so what does it mean? What is the domestic in terms of ideas about sovereignty? Um, 
Domestic also is a sense of making something your own. How uh, In a lot of sort of anthropological work on these issues, it's about how is something rendered local? Uh, can, is Are things rendered local in different kinds of practices so that this isn't just sort of, sort of imposed model of development or model of uh, encouraging people to to grapple with their conflicts in other kinds of spaces um, is it made one is it made one's own by the practices of uh, the the various sort of employees of these programs who are trying to encourage people to adopt these techniques and tools in Alalto and finally also thinking about spaces of intimacy or, or ideas of domesticity and again a lot of feminist sort of research really tries to challenge any kind of separation between the, the intimate and the public, uh, the, the public and the private, and even though these ideologies about that separation persist. And so a lot of what I'm grappling with, too, is how these programs imagine the relationship between politics, um, idea, an idea of sort of a political sphere, a public sphere, and intimate spaces of conflict, uh, how they try to intervene upon those sort of, quote unquote, domestic or intimate spaces as an effort to then transform how people engage in form in politics uh, and to think about how they are imagining that relationship in terms of how they have uh, these, uh, many of these programs or advocates of these programs have structured their interventions into, uh, as I was mentioning before, sort of very intimate disputes between uh, neighbors and kin uh, and other social relations. And so part of what I'm trying to do with the, the, the title of the book, and as I try and lay out in the different chapters, is to think about the linkages between all of these different ways of considering what it means to domesticate or what the domestic is or what domestication is uh, in terms of pacification, sovereignty, making something one's own, and intervening into intimate spaces or the relationship between intimate spaces uh, and political economic issues facing the country, in part because I'm trying to hold within the same frame people's intimate experiences of violence and conflict and these broader debates that are occurring in the country over what justice and democracy should look like. So I, I would like to um, return to something that you said a few moments ago, where you because one of the things that your book, I think, does very effectively is it takes very seriously the way that practitioners and people who engage in in these um, in these spaces really derive meaning, even if they have critiques, even if they have concerns about the larger right. processes in which these are embedded. But but it, that it helps them create a livelihood. It also informs the way they think about their activism in ways that they find useful in certain ways. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that um, kind of meaning making and the way that people do engage. Uh, that's great. Yeah. One of the things that I was really preoccupied with was in describing a lot of the folks who are participating in uh, not just who are the sort of target audience of these programs, but who are part of the group of people who are charged with uh, developing these programs. And I'm speaking largely about Bolivians. There are a few international folks, but it's largely Bolivian folks who become known as conflictologos, conflictologists, uh, who um, help design a lot of these programs who then are in charge of implementing them, who are in charge of um, training people. And one of the things I was really concerned with was, first of all, even if I have a lot of critiques of, of what these programs ultimately may or may not be doing, um, I wanted to represent them as multidimensional people, complex people who are thinking carefully and, or who, and who are wrestling with a lot of these issues themselves. Uh, and I didn't want to create caricatures, even if I in a, even if I do have some critiques. And I was really concerned concerned or interested in their own meaning making processes, like you say. So how is it that they're coming to these programs? How are they thinking about their participation in them? Why do they find them appealing? Uh, why, particularly, do people who are very critical of some of these programs continue to participate in them or advocate for them? And there's a lot written about sort of like the NGO sector in a way that I think can sometimes. Um, can sometimes uh, simplify both the motivation, so it can be framed as merely an economic interest. People are looking to make money off of their participation in these NGO projects because these NGO projects are bringing in a lot of money uh, and tend to not really uh, 
grapple with how people are thinking about their own participation within those programs. There, there's a lot of good anthropological work on anthropology of NGOs that I think is doing really thoughtful work on those issues. But in terms of the kind of debates that I heard when I was beginning to conduct research, I often heard the former, which was a kind of flattening of these particular people. And so, you know, one of the things I do is I take a concept like culture of peace, this idea of building a culture of peace that has become so ubiquitous uh, with the UN and others. There's an entire kind of field of conflict resolution studies that talks about conflict transformation um, and building a culture of peace that is a, a much more complex um, concept. Uh, but how this this concept itself has gotten picked up by people in Bolivia, including by people who are very critical of it, and how it becomes a meaningful kind of concept for them, or one that they criticize but nevertheless deploy, uh, how something that is what we would say is a multivalent term, it's a term that means many different things to many different people, including people who find themselves on pretty polar opposite ends of the political spectrum, and but who nevertheless may find this phrase uh, meaningful or suggestive of a kind of Bolivia that they are trying to um, that they are trying to help bring usher into the world through their participation in these programs, or that they are actually challenging, even as they use the same language. And so, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is to think about people who are often referred to as moral entrepreneurs, in terms of the way that they are able to mobilize sort of do-goody type projects for making for do, drawing an income, but also how they are really wrestling with what it means to participate in these programs, what it means to them, why it means so much to them. One of the people who I feature is someone who, um, you know, talks about her experience participating in, this, in these programs of designing and then helping implement them as her own kind of feminist awakening, of her, as her own sort of realization about uh, issues that she had not fully grappled with herself. Uh, and she, you know, when she tells the story, she doesn't focus on USAID. She doesn't focus on uh, debates about is this an effective way to achieve justice for people. She talks about the physical labor of going to Alalto. She lived in La Paz, of going to Alalto at night, of traversing those streets, of feeling vulnerable, of meeting with women, of hearing their stories, and in that process. Uh, discovering something of herself. And so her her understanding of her role in, in helping usher in these programs is very much focused on that very tangible kind of process of building relationships with people and, and confronting issues that she had not previously confronted. And so that becomes a really critical way of how she understands her own participation. And going to go back to the domestication issue, it's also one of the ways she's someone who uh, there were several people who, in interviews, would refer to uh, ADR programs as, as as made in Bolivia. They would do it. They say it to me in English. Uh, they they would switch from Spanish to English and say it was made in Bolivia, uh, and this sort of assertion that this is something that was born out of a Bolivian experience and it was not just an imposition from a donor uh, or their uh, their contracting organizations that they worked with was, I think, largely forged because of these. Ex- sort of bodily experiences of trying to create these programs. So part of what I'm trying to understand is to is how programs that people often can become very critical of can remain nevertheless uh, central to their lives and also why they can persist. So thinking about, you know, programs that people or or concepts like the culture of peace concept that people who have been charged with implementing or promoting begin to criticize, and yet it becomes a part of how they even understand their own experiences uh, and how they articulate what it is that they want for Bolivia, even as they're trying to sort of contrast it to uh, the programs that they may have previously participated in that they're now critical of. And so how this becomes, it becomes a kind of way that people have a vocabulary about which to talk about the issues facing facing Bolivia, so much so that it becomes integrated into the Bolivian constitution. Um, so these become, in some ways, inescapable kinds of frameworks for talking about what's happening in the country. And you know, in addition to trying to understand the meaning-making processes of these of these conflictologos, part of what I'm trying to point to is how these then become deeply embedded in how critics and advocates alike are talking about what it means to achieve justice in the country and how to do that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's, it's such an interesting issue because as you, as you kind of trace in the beginning of the book, um, there's a moment of kind of convergence between the interests of uh, social movement activists or sort of the languages that these social movement activists use in their attempts to make demands on the Bolivian state mm-hmm. and the uh, priorities of donors and the interests of these NGOs that also are also concerned with creating a governable and entrepreneurial Bolivia. Um, but at least before Morales took power, they could share a sort of a set of interests that allowed them to work together. And then yeah. one of the things that you trace here is, is the way that that kind of shifts after Morales is someone who, um, you know, would even sp- speak in terms of things like decolonizing bureaucracy, as you mentioned, right. um, but then now has this interest also in preserving Bolivian sovereignty in the face of NGOs and, and the, um, the idea that the United States or Germany or, or another country would intervene. Right. And what's yet to be seen, and I think for the subject for future research is to see what is that relationship in the wake of the sort of severing of this, this particular, uh, particularly kind of looming presence of the U S what is that going to look like in the future as Morales has been very explicitly uh, pursuing other kinds of relations with other kinds of donors and other states. Uh, And so, you know, does that lead to some kind of freedom from the influence of those other sort of strategic interests of countries like China and Russia and others? Uh, Or does it just take a different shape? And what, what will that look like? What will it mean to decolonize bureaucracies, but also foreign policy? And I think that's something that there's, there will be interesting research done on in the future. Um, as people look back both toward what's been unfolding in recent years and what will be going forward, uh, whether Morales wins the upcoming election or not. I think that's a really open and very interesting question. Um, And also what it means to decolonize a state um, once you're in power. Yes. Um, Yes. That's unfolding as we speak. Um, It is indeed. But I was wondering if we could talk for a moment about your own process in terms of conducting this ethnography, mm-hmm. um, because you were someone who was embedded in these organizations. You were often an intern or conducting the work alongside um, the people who worked in these spaces. And so that, uh, especially when it comes to things like interviewing survivors of domestic violence or people who are um already perceiving themselves to be sort of at the mercy of these organizations or at the courts. How did you negotiate that as, as an ethnographer? So that was something that I was really concerned about. So as you mentioned, I spent a lot of time, I interviewed people at different integrated justice centers. And, and that means that these were sort of conciliation centers that were created by USAID that were in neighborhoods targeted because of their quote unquote conflictualness in El Alto, but also in other parts of the country that were perceived to be places where there was a lot of conflict among other issues related to the drug war and and immigration or migration. Um, And so I, I, in addition to my work with NGOs or attending workshops or attending public events or trainings, uh, I spent a great deal of time in these integrated justice centers uh, and including in one in particular, even though I also conducted research in the others. And one of my primary concerns, because I was embedded there, and I basically had a formal internship uh, with the Ministry of Justice and was working there on a day-to-day basis, one of my concerns was that when people would come into the center, would approach the desk where I was working or was sitting next to one of the other interns, these are institutions that were, at the time that I was working there, largely staffed by college age interns. Previously, they'd been staffed by neighborhood volunteers, and there had been a shift to making this a place where uh, college age interns could work under the supervision of uh, of employees, who the main conciliator, the director of the center. So they had supervision. Uh, but they these were the sort of frontline people who were receiving folks who would come into these centers seeking legal aid, seeking advice, uh, or asking for a letter of invitation that they could provide to someone to invite them to participate in a mediation session. 
And, and a lot of the folks who approached the center were also people who were there to lodge uh, domestic violence complaints, and some of whom were actively bleeding when they would walk in the room. And so one of my preoccupations was, as a, ethically as an ethnographer, was not to do anything that would give that person the impression that if they didn't agree to have a conversation with me as an anthropologist, that they would not have access to those services. And so in most cases, I, if I was receiving someone who was coming in and I was typing up their um, case into a case sort of file on, on the computer system or uh, explaining to them what their options were, or if I was sitting next to another intern who was doing that, um, I, I encountered them first as someone who was seeking a particular service. And then only later, usually after uh, after they had been had their sort of case file uploaded or had their letter of invitation to conciliation or uh, had had their other kinds of questions addressed, I would approach them either that day or another day. A lot of people I saw over and over and over again. And so depending on, and again, this is one of those sort of subjective things as an anthropologist where I was trying to kind of pick up on whether or not someone felt too vulnerable if someone was actively very, very vulnerable, uh, I wouldn't approach them and ask them to have that conversation at that moment. Uh, but I might later, when I would see them, when they would come back on another day, say, explain who I am, uh, explain that I was an anthropologist, what my project was, and then ask them at that stage if they would be willing to have another conversation, uh, at which point I would do, uh, if, if your listeners are familiar with the sort of ethics review board, the IRB, I would then proceed to do my kind of IRB explanation of my, my project um, and ask if they would be willing to be interviewed uh, and, and proceed as, that way. But it really did mean a lot of times I was having to kind of gauge where people were at when they were approaching the center. If they were just there to ask a question about, you know, something that, that uh, wasn't terribly sensitive, I felt more comfortable saying, hey, can I introduce myself? Uh, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm here. Um, but in cases where people seemed very vulnerable, upset, uh, or were dealing with violence issues, uh, I was much more cautious in when I would talk to them about it. Uh, there's a lot of really excellent work by anthropologists, ethnographers who have worked in other kinds of similarly sensitive institutional settings. So Summerson Carr, who's a wonderful linguistic anthropologist who has worked in addiction treatment centers and, and, and talks about that, um, and who came, I, I believe she came to that work after previously being a social worker. I may be getting that wrong, but, you know, had also come with a similar kind of background to mine of having worked in a particular field and then transitioned to being an ethnographer, drawing on that background experience. Angela Garcia is another person who is embedded in an, in a, an addiction treatment center and was also sort of grappling with some of these ethical issues about uh, being present when people are very vulnerable and how to handle that ethically. I, I will also say that, you know, some of my concerns too were about the identities of the interns who were there, who were participating, who um, who were struggling with things and maybe making mistakes or, you know, figuring things out as they were going along, as well as the staff and uh, trying to approach all of these different groups of people, some of whom were structurally more vulnerable than others with the same kind of care uh, as I was present, you know, on the day-to-day -day kind of life of this institution, it meant that I saw people at their best and I saw people at their worst. And they saw me also at my best and my worst, too. Um, and so really wanting to be respectful about um, how to both, as I mentioned earlier, render people as complex human beings who are grappling in some cases with very difficult circumstances. Uh, you know, when you're a 19-year-old intern and you're day-to-day -day dealing with uh, a lot of violence, you know, that was weighing down on a lot of the young interns as well. Um, and, and trying to hold all of that together in terms of, you know, thinking about both what I was witnessing as a, as an ethnographer, when I was approaching people for permission to interview them formally, and when I was invited into particular spaces like conciliation spaces as well. Um, and also not making myself not present in other spaces where there was concern that my presence might uh, make people feel like the reason that they were there to do mediation was somehow uh, 
was somehow going to be biased because of my presence. And that that the opening vignette of the book is about me a, accompanying someone to deliver a letter of conciliation, an invitation to do mediation. And I would have loved to have sat in that room and listened to that mediation session. I didn't enter because I had been present to deliver, help deliver the letter, and I didn't want to create any feelings of bias. And that's a practitioner concern that I wanted to respect. And so I, you know, the ethnographer would have loved to have been there, but concerns about not impinging on that space led me to choose to, uh, even though I think my sense is people would have been fine with me being in there, but I, I didn't want to risk it. And so I did not enter the space. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a, that's a really useful way of, of thinking about it. Um, and that anecdote, um, leads me to ask, so you, one of the things that this book also does well is is you you are very careful about the humanity um, of all the subjects you write about. And in certain cases, you're writing about um, very disturbing things and, and particular kinds of violence that emerges between actors. And so I was wondering if you had any advice for other scholars who are entering into projects like this or who might be writing about similar kinds of domestic violence, particularly um, and how you maybe how you approach that in your project, or if you have any advice for people. I don't know have any, if I have any great advice, but I will say that this is something I really wrestled with, and it's helpful for me when I talk to other people who have also wrestled with this stuff to think about how they wrestled with it, how they've dealt with it in a particular project, and it may be something that is an ongoing kind of unfolding thing that we come back to, a perennial issue that we return to as we think about it. For me, one of my primary concerns, uh, and I talk about this in one of the chapters uh, where I'm dealing very explicitly with domestic violence or intimate partner violence, even though that is threaded throughout, is this concern I had about the way that particularly uh, Altenio men who are largely Aymara, indigenous Aymara, are often characterized as violent, drunken, kind of aggressive people, just as the people of El Alto are often characterized as more violent and aggressive. And, and I was really concerned about not wanting to reproduce those stereotypes, even as I was working in spaces where we were dealing with a lot of violence. It was inescapable. I mean, that was a significant part of the work at these centers. And so how to talk, tell those stories, how to talk about the complexities of those issues without um, erasing the violence. I didn't want to participate uh, in that kind of erasure and a, and a, and a refusal to reckon with the presence of that violence, which was significant. But I also was struggling and, and kind of grappling with how to then talk about that violence in a way without reproducing particular stereotypes or um, or rendering people who were involved in complicated kind of violent relationships, again, as, as one-dimensional or as either wholly defined by the violence that they were experiencing. So making people into some sort of, you know, shell of a person who is who is only defined by being the victim of violence uh nor did i want to uh you know characterize perpetrators of violence as somehow also one-dimensional and so that was a, a challenge and i think a lot of what i what i ended up doing was just writing very explicitly about those dilemmas and then trying to and as best i could in in particularly in chapter five uh, but also in other places layer on all of the different ways I heard people wrestling with these issues themselves, how I heard them articulating their own understanding of what was happening there. Uh, uh, in addition to, uh, you know, pushing back against the idea that, that the violence that people were experiencing was exclusively men uh, enacting forms of violence on women, talking about conflict and violence occurring between women. There's some really excellent work that's been done by a number of uh, Andean ethnographers who really try and complicate our accounts of particularly domestic violence in the Andes. And so Krista Van Vliet and uh, Harvey and others kind of try and complicate that. Uh, Silvia Rivera Cusicanqui. Um, but then also uh, trying, I think, very importantly to me to show that people uh, experience joy and happiness and playfulness and amid they're sort of grappling with these issues as well. And so that people were not reduced to kind of sad victims, but but that the, all of these things could be present in a particular person's life, uh, including 
great pain and great sorrow and great joy. Um, and that these were folks who were, who were critically thinking about their own experiences of violence. That This wasn't just me coming in and saying, here, let me explain to you what's happening to folks here, but rather people were engaged in their own kind of theorizing and understanding and unpacking of their, of their experiences of violence, whether it was inflicted by a sister-in-law or whether or not they had also uh, hurt someone in their family as well uh, or a neighbor. And so I, I think part of it has been me trying to just be very open about how I was wrestling with the representational issues of that. So the representational politics of, of laying bare uh, certain experiences of violence that I was encountering in these centers um, while also then trying to bring in all of these different voices and, and have them all kind of in conversation with each other. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I also want to, um, I don't want to leave reader or listeners with the impression that um, you're only talking about intimate partner violence because a few of your chapters where you are focusing on um, folks who are engaging in these practices from a non-practitioner side, you you also have some very engaging material around things like relationships, uh, co-madre and co-padre relationships, but also particularly um, microfinance and credit. And so I was wondering whether you, if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your sewing machine uh, chapter and how you came to organize that um, for the reader, for the listener. So the sewing machine chapter, it's called the conflictual social life of an industrial sewing machine. And it's a chapter that really kind of came together because I was attending conciliation sessions between a, a group of women. Um, and as I was trying to piece together the story, I became, it was, it was a kind of complicated, messy web of, of relationships that had been forged through people lending and borrowing, and in particular, using a sewing machine as collateral on a series of debts. And part of what the, the chapter tries to do is to trace the circulation of this sewing machine among what I initially think is a small group of women, and I later come to understand is a larger group of people who are connected through the industrial sewing machine, but they're also connected through their participation in multiple different microfinance groups from multiple different microfinance institutions. And this is something that I never thought would be a part of my project. I did not come into this as a microfinance scholar. Uh, I actually resisted it a lot. This is in anthropology, we talk about following the ethnographic, and this is one of those instances where I was really resisting it because I thought this is, you know, there are people who are focusing exclusively on microfinance, who are anthropologists of finance, um, who are much more explicitly economic anthropologists. And yet it was an inescapable sort of subject matter because about a third to half of the cases that these integrated justice centers dealt with were conflicts that were related to debt. And what I what I try and show in the in the sewing machine chapter is how these relationships between friends and kin, compadres, comadres, uh, people who are, who are in fictive kin relations as, as uh, co-parents of, of godchildren are forged through lending practices, lending and borrowing practices. In many cases, people are lending each other money to help each other pay off microfinance quotas or other bank uh, loans, or they're participating, they're recruiting their own friends and family into participating in microfinance groups. And as a consequence, as people are finding themselves more and more heavily indebted and unable to pay off those loans, an enormous amount of conflict, including violence, was occurring. Um, and so part of what I try and trace in that sewing machine chapter is how those relationships are formed, the kinds of strains, the very thing that often constitutes intimate relations uh, and social relations in, in Bolivia, and particularly Alalta, which is that kind of give and take of, of, of lending and borrowing or the kind of moral and material debts that I talk about, whether you are providing people with emotional support or financial support, or you're contributing a case of beer at a wedding celebration. These are relationships that are forged by those give and take, that give and take. And yet, as more and more people have become involved in microfinance, the kind of strains on that give and take and the temporality of people's need to return. So the idea that you've loaned me money, I must now return because I also have to make a, a bank quota payment that kind of compressed temporality that's been introduced by people's microfinance loans has led people to have to call back in their kind of call in those debts uh, much more quickly um, and, and in a way that has really strained those relationships. And so part of what I'm trying to trace in that chapter is both the, 
the forging and the fraying of those relationships as people find themselves in, in trouble economically, as well as the forms of violence that surround it. One of the arguments I make is that one of the consequences of the way that uh, alternative dispute resolution has been operating in these centers is that it tries to reduce conflict to a little dyadic relationship between two people who come and who resolve their conflict and maybe write up an accord where they agree that they're going to help pay off those loans. Um, you know, I'm making a promise to you that I'm going to I'm going to start paying you back in small quotas. Uh, but what that ends up doing is it 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 erases these broader networks. And and one of the things I show is that much larger uh, social network, but also the political economic context of that network in that chapter of this group of women who are connected through the sewing machine. And to say, you know, they they dealt with their conflicts in groups of two. That groups of two did provide people with some kind of recourse to to feel like they were uh, moving toward getting repaid in the case of, of these lending and borrowing relationships, but it, it erased the broader context of conflict. And it oftentimes didn't fully grapple with the fact that uh, oftentimes because these are kind of kin relationships as well, it's very hard to, to somehow separate an individual out of that broader so a set of social relations. And so part of what I'm asking is what is erased in the process of, of um, treating these as dyadic disputes between two people who are in conflict because of a loan, for example, but also the ways that violence is erased. And one of the things I found was that in, in the process of drafting these uh, conflict resolution accords, in many cases, women who were dealing with domestic violence wanted to write a conciliation accords with violent partners, uh, despite the fact that staff would often resist this and say, this is a situation where you really need to take into court for domestic violence. That's a whole nother conversation around um, kind of carceral feminism in, in the context of U.S. debates around uh, using uh, the courts to punish uh, domestic violence um, abusers. But uh, many women in the case of Bolivia didn't want to take their partners to court, they wanted them to sign a conciliation accord saying that they would help them pay off their debts. Uh, and so oftentimes you would have uh, staff who would who would agree to do that. And it meant that you had to erase the violence from the accord itself and from the account of what was causing tension in that relationship. So you stripped away violence uh, from uh, these accords, uh, erasing it in that instance. But you also had instances where women would come in, in the case of the women who are featured in the sewing machine story, who would come in and in the process of trying to come to an agreement among themselves would begin to kind of um, un, uh, you know, layer upon layer tell stories about the forms of violence that they were experiencing in their home and the way that it was connected to tensions uh, that were that were rising because of their heavy indebtedness. And so in that way, those kinds of stories, the presence of that violence that was that was thick in the room as people were telling these stories was also erased. And so, you know, in that, in the context of that chapter, I'm both trying to show the way that these relationships are being created and destroyed through that kind of lending and borrowing, but also what gets written out of the accords in terms of the stripping away of violence, the stripping away of um more complicated lending and borrowing practices that are becoming increasingly untenable for a lot of people. Uh, but that broader political economic context is also erased in the process of reducing these to disputes between two friends or two neighbors or to a sister-in-law and, um, and her, uh, you know, her brother's wife. So trying to kind of repopulate that story about what appears to be you know, the circulation of a machine is collateral on a, a couple of loans with that broader context is, is the larger project of that chapter. Thank you. That's such a, that's, that's very helpful. Um, and I think one of the things that's so interesting is that it, there's also an erasure that happens at the level of these um, microfinance organizations that, that ha tell a story to the world about, um, you know, bringing ideas of credit and finance to populations that don't have them. And that's just not how Bolivia works. Bolivia has many longstanding traditions of loaning that tend to 
back through family networks and, and extended kinship. And so, so treating these conflicts as though they start between two people also erases like that longer history as well. Um, very much so. I agree very much so. And, and part of what I'm trying to show is that, you know, lending and borrowing did not emerge in Alalto with microfinance. There have long been lending and borrowing practices. The question is what shape has that taken and how have they been further complicated by the a- access to new forms of credit as they become entangled with e- with each other, including lending and borrowing between friends and kin, but also reliance on money lenders and the idea that microfinance would somehow um, would somehow end reliance on money lenders has not been the case. It's just become another reason that people turn to money lenders for essentially payday loans, in addition to friends and kin, in their desperate efforts to pay off bank quotas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, I know that you have, in addition to writing this book, you have in the process of your research and your um, and your experiences in Bolivia also done some writing for these organizations themselves, um, trying to uh, communicate some of the results of your research outside of the academic monograph format. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And these are pieces of writing that will never appear in any other kind of format besides internal memos and reports that I drafted for some of the institutions that I worked with. And that was at their request and also my attempt to kind of be responsive to what would be relevant and interesting and important to them to use my background as an ethnographer in a way that would, uh, that would sort of, um, be useful to their own interests and questions. So I, you know, I have the, I have the book and I have some articles. And one of the things I often wrestled with was in trying to kind of report back to people about what my research findings were, the kinds of questions I was asking as an anthropologist were not always the kinds of questions that they were most interested in. If I'm dealing with, you know, practitioners in these conciliation programs, a lot of their concerns were about how to improve communication and coordination and morale, but also treatment of clients in the centers. So how to receive people in respectful ways, how to help interns um, be responsive to to clients, how to anticipate um, sort of breakdowns in in office uh, interactions, which is sort of typical stuff that people wrestle with when they're working in, in offices, and especially when they're working in offices that are dealing with very difficult issues uh, like violence, um, but also having worked some in, in courts and in other spaces as well. Oftentimes, the the kinds of things that they wanted me to provide for them were uh, were oriented around very particular kinds of questions that were pressing to them. And so, you know, even as and as I'm doing research and I'm trying to kind of forge relationships with people and and be responsive to what is a value to them. It, it's meant um, writing different kinds of, of, of reports on my work. So I've sat down and I've explained kind of the arguments and the and the interventions and the more theoretical interventions that I'm trying to make about within the book to various groups of people who are who appear in the book who um, you know, whether it's providing a, a report back to the Ministry of Justice or a report back uh, to the Integrated Justice Centers or just sitting down and telling people what I argue in the book at different stages. And I did that all along the way of, of from the dissertation stage to the final printing of the book. And I will ultimately be working on translation uh, of the book and articles. But it's also meant writing very different kinds of pieces that are for very specific audiences. Um, and pushing me to um, think about how to really concretize some of my own kind of findings, but then also to draft things that will never appear, that don't appear in the book, that will never appear in an article, but that are responsive to the the concerns of a very particular audience. And I think that's an important thing to do as well, um, because as much as I can try and be transparent about my arguments and my findings that are peer in scholarly writing, uh, that is not always what interests people. Um, and and I, I want to use this sort of tools that anthropology can, offers to answer other kinds of questions that are going to be more pressing to people. I do try and, I try and bridge the two, right? So I still try to convey why I think 
what I'm arguing in the book is significant and worth taking seriously. Uh, and I find that oftentimes it's a lot of the folks who work with NGOs um, or who are dealing with the, the issues related to debt who find things that I'm arguing in the book very compelling and relevant to their own understandings of their own experience. Um, but, you know, staff working in an organization are also going to want to figure out how to continue to improve on the day-to-day work of their institution. So even if I'm critiquing that institution in terms of these sort of larger patterns, um, I'm also trying to be responsive to their interests and needs as well. And, um, and so it ends up meaning that you, that you write very different kinds of writing for very different audiences, which I think is a good exercise in general. Um, but, and it also forces me to kind of go back and forth between um, these different registers of how we think about the work that's being done in these kinds of institutional spaces as well. Well, thank you so much for all of your all of your thoughtful answers, and I really I really enjoyed reading the book and um, had fun in this conversation. Um, and I uh, I just wanted to say thank you, and um, I look forward to talking again. Thank you, Elena, and thank you also to the New Books Network uh, in Latin American Studies for the opportunity to talk about the book. Appreciate it.